I used to come out here with my grandson and he'd choose which egg he was going to have. And I, you know, I had two grandsons. I used to let them play in the dirt and I had a digging patch for them where I put water and they made mud. And I just had this huge guilt that I'd done something to harm my grandchildren. I just felt so violated and so upset. That's Joanna Pigford talking about how she felt when she found out her land was poisoned. In the late 1980s, Joanna was struggling to pay her rent in Sydney, so she moved to the Hawkesbury Valley at the foot of the Blue Mountains. She eventually saved enough for a deposit on a weatherboard cottage in Richmond, not far from a Royal Australian Air Force base. She planted fruit trees and veggies and bought some chickens. She made friends with local artists and started making tapestries and mosaics. It was the perfect place to raise her family. But Joanna didn't know those veggies were growing in soil contaminated by man-made chemicals. Chemicals we all have an intimate relationship with. And there's a growing body of evidence that these chemicals are making us sick. Very sick. I'm Wendy Frew, and you're listening to Think Sustainability, a podcast about how we can create a sustainable future and a healthier planet. Joanna and I sat talking in her backyard. She's really proud of her garden. Well, it's not just my garden, it's my house, because I was a single parent, and I was very, very proud of the fact that I managed to buy a house on a teacher's salary, which wasn't very much. This was the cheapest house in town, I used to say, because it's so close to the RAF base. This became our castle. We went without a lot just so that we could have a house so that we didn't have to keep moving, moving, moving all the time. I was incredibly excited when I finally paid off the entire loan and could say that I owned my own home. I planted most of those trees across the back there. It's just been my place, my my little paradise, really. This was my bit of land. Joanna's world turned upside down in late 2017 when she received a letter from the Department of Defence asking her what she did on her land. At first she didn't understand what the problem was. I got a survey to fill out in my letterbox and it said that it was a water survey. I thought this is odd because it asked me first if I had a bore water but then it asked me if I had chickens so I wrote oh funny why, why do they need to know I've got chickens but being a good citizen I duly filled it out and sent it off to the rat base they got in touch with me and wanted to come out and, and test the soil they came and they took soil from two places and they oh they took eggs they took eggs from my chickens Six months after Joanna filled in that first survey, the New South Wales Environmental Regulator, the Environment Protection Agency, turned up to tell her the soil in her backyard, some of her vegetables and even her chook eggs were contaminated with a family of chemicals called PFAS, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances. PFAS are really useful chemicals. Your house is full of them. And you're probably wearing some of them right now. You're cooking with them. They're everywhere, including inside your body. PFAS are sometimes called chemicals of convenience because they make our food packaging greaseproof, they make our fry pans and steam irons non-stick, and our raincoats water-resistant. 
Their heat, oil and water resistance properties made them perfect for putting out fires. And it turns out that for decades, the RAF base near Joanna's house had been using foam that contained PFAS chemicals for firefighting and fire training. After rain, the foam made its way through the drains, leached into waterways and ended up in farms and backyards. The contamination came back so high that the EPA guy got in touch with me and told me that I must no longer eat the eggs. They wanted to come back out again because they said that the amount of PFAS in my soil was not indicative of the amount in my chooks and so that I must be doing something wrong. So they were trying like, to put the blame on me. And um, I can remember asking the guy, is there anything else that contains PFAS? And he said, oh, he said, yes, Teflon saucepans and I said well I don't feed my chickens in Teflon and I don't cook them food and then he said oh house paint and I said no I don't feed them house paint you know and I was I was getting really sarcastic by then anyway they then took water from my water tank they took um the food that I was feeding the chickens they took more samples more eggs and I forced them to take mandarin I said to them what about my vegetables oh no no they're fine we've we've not found a lot of PFAS in vegetables but that that set me going and I got really angry because they just weren't helping that's when I set up the Facebook page and started reaching out to people Joanna didn't know it but the Department of Defense knew it had a problem on its hands it had known for decades but residents felt they were being drip-fed information Joanna quickly became frustrated with what the officials were telling her I actually made up my own flyers and letter dropped them throughout the whole of Richmond, East Richmond and all down Francis Street, anywhere anywhere near the river. And I put a big sign up on the main road to Windsor saying that there was this meeting and they got a really big turnout to the next meeting. Lots of farmers and lots of um, turf growers, vegetable growers. And they, they wouldn't give you a straight answer. So I did my own research and discovered that, that PFAS chemical likes to stick to proteins. And that's why my mandarins are free of PFAS. And that's why you can't just eat any old vegetables because some of them have protein in it and it'll stick to it. I started having to buy vegan dental floss and I buy, you know, was buying all these things, got rid of all my Teflon um, out of the house and bought stainless steel and um, I, t- I said to my daughter no more microwave popcorn for the boys you have to you know get a popcorn popper and make it yourself and at the same time I was weighing up how damaged had I been compared to people who've lost their whole livelihood and their farms and everything I had that guilt of not being as bad as other people not being as badly contaminated as other people and I became quite emotional at one stage and they brought a social worker to meet with me and I felt hugely um, suspicious that she was there to say that I was mad rather than to help me you know what I mean it was that kind of thing it was oh it was horrible it was around this time the Department of Defence announced publicly that a 10 square kilometre plume of PFAS contamination had been found in the water below and around the Richmond Air Base. PFAS was found in local creeks and lagoons above safe drinking levels and at low levels in the Hawkesbury River. People living near the airbase were told to eat less locally caught fish, less locally grown eggs and less red meat because of the contamination. 
To cut a long story short, Joanna and other local landowners were part of a huge class action that effectively said the Commonwealth didn't stop the firefighting foam from leaking into the groundwater. In May this year, the government settled with tens of thousands of landowners near seven RAF bases for $130 million. And New South Wales has now banned the firefighting foam for training or demonstration purposes. But the money was only to compensate landowners for any drop in the value of their land caused by the contamination. Following news of the settlement, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese hinted at a bigger, more alarming picture. The biggest concern that I have with PFAS isn't, of course, a financial one. It is the health outcomes of people who are affected by it. The health outcomes. If you've heard about PFAS before, you've probably heard the phrase forever chemicals. That's because once they're released into the environment, I mean, they're in the air, they're in water, soil, sediments, they're even in the rain, they don't break down for tens of thousands of years. Some scientists say they'll never break down. And that could mean even if we stop using PFAS in new products, it would still be in the environment in one way or another for generations to come. PFAS has been detected in human blood and breast milk. In fact, it's in just about every person on the planet. Exposure to the chemicals has been linked to all kinds of disease. Liver damage, fertility and thyroid problems, asthma, and perhaps most alarmingly, cancer. The US government is so concerned about the health impacts from these chemicals that earlier this year it ordered water utilities to remove PFAS from all drinking water. The insidious nature of PFAS means it can turn up in all kinds of weird places, like compost at your local nursery. It's really hard to kind of find out exactly what's in that soil. Researcher Rachel Wakefield-Ran wanted to build a veggie patch free of PFAS and other contaminants. I knew that certain chemicals that get recycled through food and organics composting can actually end up in the food chain. And so I was concerned that if I bought compost or just a, a veggie soil mix from any source where that it had come from those municipal waste streams, that that could be a risk. And so I set out on the internet to try and find just an organic soil source that hadn't come from a municipal waste stream and I couldn't basically but when I asked about specific groups of chemicals such as PFAS and others that are in food packaging they just said no we don't test for those which was a concern for me. When our leftover food and grass clippings and garden leaves when they end up in landfill they break down and produce a potent greenhouse gas called methane. If we can divert that material from landfill, we'll generate fewer greenhouse gases. Which is why composting matters. The more material we put into compost, the less goes to landfill. Recently, local councils had started telling residents it was okay to add paper packaging, like pizza boxes, stuff like that, to the food and garden waste that councils were already collecting and composting. I mean, I was putting brown paper bags into my home compost that I used for my veggie patch. I mean, it's paper. It's made from trees. It's organic, right? But it turns out some of this brown paper contains PFAS chemicals. And that risks derailing the state government's plans to make all councils turn food and garden waste into compost. 
Rachel is a senior research consultant at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. It's her job to figure out how we can design products and services without using hazardous stuff. Stuff like PFAS. Instead of just extracting more and more things and disposing of them, we look to see how we can extract less and how we can keep what's in use in use for longer and then how we can reuse those things for different purposes afterwards. We've known for decades that man-made chemicals can cause disease. Agent Orange, herbicides, pesticides. But often it's not obvious until years later what damage these chemicals have done to the environment or to our health. We know now long-term and regular exposure to small amounts of toxic substances can be deadly. A report published last year in the prestigious journal The Lancet calculated that about 9 million people die every year from chronic diseases caused by environmental pollutants. That's roughly the populations of Sydney and Melbourne combined. Dead. Every year. Researchers call this gradual exposure the slow violence of everyday pollution. Slow violence, it's a, it's a great term that kind of came out of the US and people that were looking at particularly communities that were marginalised already that were being affected by the environments that they lived in in ways that weren't dramatic. It wasn't like an earthquake or a, or a sudden disaster. They were long, slow exposures to harmful things in the environment that were affecting their bodies in the long term and intergenerational ways. So these things are less likely to kind of grab media attention and excitement from the community because they, they just don't have those moments of engagement. Yeah. So the slow violence is... Is that you know in relation to the the build up, the accumulation of the chemicals either in the environment or in our bodies? Both uh, the act of violence itself would be the act of the pollution, and the experience of it is is by the people that are having these exposures, often in low doses over the long term, and that's having effects on their health and the health of their children. Exposure to PFAS chemicals is a classic example of the slow violence of everyday pollution. These chemicals are a product of US industrialisation. Think brands like Teflon, Scotchgard and Gore-Tex. There was a big post-war chemical boom in around the mid-20th century. Cookware never needs scouring. If it has DuPont, Teflon. And a lot of the products, not just convenience products, but many of the products that we rely on for our everyday lives were designed around the functionality of these chemicals or that these chemicals provided. So a lot of the products that we know and that structure our routines rely on these chemicals. The disturbing thing about PFAS chemicals is their longevity and the way they leak all along the supply chain. That's got all kinds of ramifications it will persist in the environment. So better if it's going to a managed landfill, but the opportunities for it to leach prior to that are pretty high. When you've got these forever chemicals, mm. does that raise a problem for recycling the materials? Absolutely. It's a huge, huge problem. Uh, it's something that 
the European Union is now focusing on a lot because they've realised that it's heavily undermining the circular economy in Europe and essentially mean that a number of products can't be safely recycled. So particularly for products such as electronics, there's a lot of PFAS used in electronics in the plastic coatings and things like that. And of course, there's a huge push to to be able to recycle um, e-waste because it is such a big problem. So there's a significant barrier there. Uh, But then, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, food packaging is a huge, huge problem. So there's around 8,000 chemicals that are used in food contact materials. Some of those are PFASs, but a lot of them, we don't really know about the effects of them very well. So we're talking about chemicals that are in the packaging for, say, what, pizza boxes, Mm -hmm. coffee cups, anything where you don't want it getting too greasy or too or leaking if there's moisture or water. Yeah, so I mean the range of chemicals provide a number of functions. So things like PFAS which provides water and grease resistance, you'll often get them on takeaway packaging and they will leach from those into the food itself, but then once they enter the environment or they're recycled into new things, those PFASs persist in in the secondary products that that they go into. But then a number of the other chemicals, such as classes of bisphenols, so a lot of people will be familiar with BPA, uh, and also phthalates, uh, they're also chemicals of concern for different reasons that we don't really want being recycled into other products. Which takes us back to compost. Last year, the EPA that's the same agency that told Joanna not to eat her eggs, started to worry that paper packaging would contaminate the food and garden waste councils were collecting to make compost. Did it tell manufacturers to stop using these dangerous chemicals? No. Instead, it banned all paper and other fibre-based packaging from curbside compost bins. Where's all that packaging going now? Mostly straight to landfill. Some people reckon banning all paper from compost is like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So what's the solution? There needs to be some really interesting design thinking around how we actually enable different types of food packaging that we don't need to throw out after first use. A lot of the time we're going to need to transition away from single-use plastic or single-use packaging in order to eliminate the need for a lot of these chemicals. And that's what's been interesting, I guess, about the debate on PFAS in paper packaging, that Mm. some of this material is a replacement for plastic. Mm. And you think, great, let's go back to paper. And then, hang on a minute, there's another (laughs) issue we have to think about. So where do we step in? Is this regulation? Is this design? Yeah, it's a great question. It's both. Regulation has a really strong role to play, not only in terms of just ensuring that people feel safe and protected, but also to set design criteria for designers to work with to actually create those sustainable designs. So regulation and strong policy guidance play a really, really important role. Within Australia, there's not very strong regulations restricting these types of substances. It's really up to industry to kind of self-regulate and put those protections in themselves. Regulations are meant to protect us and the environment. But in instances like this, chemical companies bypass regulations. It's called regrettable substitution. One chemical is banned only to be replaced by another that's just as bad or potentially worse. 
A product such as BPA is a great example, is deemed to be hazardous. And then people go, okay, um, I really need a chemical with those properties to perform in this product. I'll find one that's really, really closely related, but hasn't had the same research attention. And so in the case of BPA, it was replaced with BPS, which has subsequently been found to be as if not more harmful than BPA. And so you get on this kind of treadmill of regrettable substitution because people need products that function in the same way. And that's where you get businesses that have a system where they provide reusable containers uh, for either groceries or takeaway. What we're talking about here is a throwback to the past. You know, the good old days when the milkman delivered milk in glass bottles to your front door and then he took the empties back to the milk factory where they were washed and used again and again and again. There are some baby steps in this field. Companies like Melbourne-based Returner, who design reusable takeaway containers that are being used by some cafes and food delivery services. So I think there could be a lot of really interesting policy work to start incentivising that type of design, but also at a really fundamental level, of course, just identifying and restricting the most harmful substances in use. Then, of course, industry needs to take responsibility as well here. So there's a really um, great global movement of um, ethical investors that are kind of really starting to pay attention to chemical risk now and putting pressure on their companies that they invest in to kind of say, look, there's a huge risk here to the community. It's a huge brand risk for you. What are you going to do? What's your kind of strategy to phase these chemicals out of your products? So uh, that pressure is is increasing and it's great to see certain brands taking more responsibility. But I think a lot of the time they're still falling into this trap of regrettable substitution and they need to, again, take that step back, look at how they can kind of design in a totally different way. When it comes to these new chemical formations that they're doing, so they're looking for a substitution for BPA and they know one chemicals you can't use that anymore that's that gets banned do they not have to test the new one <laughs> I, I mean i know america is different from here but in australia you could, surely you can't just come up with a new chemical and start using it i uh, yeah no you can <laughs> yeah so there's around uh, i think it's 80,000 chemicals registered for use and around 2,000 new ones come online every year very few are tested for their their long-term effects. And I guess that's a critical issue is the effects aren't short-term, they're long-term. So they're causing things like cancers, reproductive abnormalities, things that won't manifest immediately. So uh, chemicals are tested for their kind of immediate toxicity, then studies are used to try and estimate further toxicity, but that doesn't often result in restriction. So if you think about the fact that cigarettes are still legal and able to be sold. Some countries have now regulated classes of chemicals such as PFASs and actively restricted them in all consumer products. And the reason that this is a really, um, I guess, positive and innovative step forward is because previously you'd need to compile all this evidence around a single chemical and then get that restricted. But there are, you know, 4,700 chemicals in that class and so you end up just with again this regrettable substitution problem and not really getting anywhere and so there's a number of groups and scientists that are um, promoting a class-based approach to restrictions so it's saying that okay we know that this chemical is really closely related to this one that we haven't tested let's restrict them both. Until now, Australia hasn't restricted the trade or use of most PFAS chemicals, but it looks like that's about to change. 
The federal government intends to stop the import, manufacture and use of some types of PFAS within the next two years. But can we live safely with any level of these chemicals in our products? There's an old saying in regulation that the dose makes the poison. In other words, a little bit of it won't hurt you. But that's now being challenged, especially when it comes to PFAS chemicals. There's an issue with what we call low-dose effects. So there is often an assumption that if you have something in a really small dose, it'll be fine. And then the question just becomes about what is the lowest safe dose for us to have in this product. And this... uh, I guess, way of thinking again comes back to the time when the big chemical boom emerged in the kind of mid-20th century. All of a sudden, waterways and air and things started becoming polluted as a result of this industrial boom. And I guess governments and industries started saying, well, we can't just restrict this activity entirely. It's really central to kind of our economic growth. Let's figure out the lowest amount of pollution that can be tolerable, so the threshold, and let's set a limit there and then pollution under that level is fine. So this is based on a big assumption that there is a low safe dose for all products. And what's been discovered in recent years is that a number of uh, chemicals, and particularly those considered to be endocrine disrupting, so that means chemicals that disrupt your hormonal system, they actually act in different and sometimes worse ways when we're exposed at extremely low doses. And so this idea of there being a safe threshold dose uh, doesn't really hold up for these types of things. Joanna Pickford doesn't feel safe with low doses of PFAS. She wants the chemicals banned. Now. She spent thousands of dollars raising the veggie beds and paving her backyard so that her grandsons couldn't play in the soil and her chickens couldn't scratch in it. I just, I just, I just get so angry because if you were making medications, you have to do tests to make sure they won't kill people. But chemical companies know that their chemicals are probably going to be bad and they're already making the next one so when that one has can't be used anymore they've got the next one ready to go which is exactly what happened with PFAS they've got a new chemical which they call Gen X which they're using and that has been already found to be a problem because people are aware so it's moved much quicker and I'm pretty sure they'll have the next one yet it's all about making money and we're the guinea pigs the population of the world are the guinea pigs and they can do what they like just in the name of making money it's absolutely horrifying and it still affects me in many ways it's just I don't know it just blows my mind I guess I just can't believe that governments do this to us that's it for this episode of Think Sustainability Thanks to Joanna Pickford and Rachel Wakefield-Rand for talking to me. This series is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and it's heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. It was made in Sydney on Gadigal land. The executive producer of this episode was Lawrence Bull. You can listen to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Wendy Frew. Thanks for listening.